Hey, it's Yana Budd. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. In this crazy, fast-paced world, it can be hard to keep things in perspective, especially when it comes to the romance department, if you know what I mean. That's why I speak with a relationship coach about why it's so important to have a good work-life balance to make sure you do some introspection and also find that special somebody. And we also look into how Ontario police officers who have been suspended from work can still receive a full, full paycheck, sometimes for years. A criminologist helps to break down why it's only in Ontario, how it affects taxpayers, and why even police chiefs want this law changed. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help you be at your best. Do you find it difficult to sleep at night? That's the question. The second question is, and if so, do you nap a little bit during the day? One would think that that's a good thing to do. I'd be lying to tell you that I didn't absolutely love my sleep. I really do. If I have the opportunity on vacation or on a weekend or something where I can catch a, you know, catch an hour, maybe 90 minutes max of some afternoon sleep time and uh, kind of cuddle up, especially when it's cold outside or the air conditioning is blowing and it's cold inside. I like the cold. I like to sleep with the cold. I don't know about you. Love to hear from you, though. Give us a call. Leo's standing by to take the call, 877-399-9898, and talk to me about your sleep. That's what we're talking about. Do you find it difficult to sleep? And if so, do you have a little nap during the day? And if not, you know, how do you sort of deal with your sleep depravity, if that's even the right thing to say? Anyway, I want to hear from you. If you're interested, text us or call us. The international study found sleep issues like too little or too much sleep could all be linked to an increased risk of stroke. That's the thing today. It's a big, you know, it's apparently affecting the opportunity for your uh, for your system, for your heart to to uh, to fail in a way that comes across in stroke-like symptoms. And a lot of the experts are saying that's direct can be a direct correlation to a whole bunch of things for sure. But sleep is also a big part of it. And if you've ever listened to any shows that you've uh, had the time to tune into and be a part of with me, uh, you know that we talk a lot on this show about sleeping well, eating well, and some form of exercise every day. So sleep's not just, you know, something that Yona thinks you should do. It's something that everybody thinks you should do out there. So difficult getting or maintaining sleep or sleeping too long or too little, napping and snoring are all among the issues linked to an increased risk of stroke. A recent study has found suggesting sleep problems could be an arena of focus for stroke prevention. So, you know, again, makes sense. If you're sleeping well, Chances are your body's functioning well, and you're not likely, based on this study for sure, not likely to have an increased risk of stroke. But if you're not sleeping well, the study identifies a link between sleep problems and stroke. It doesn't show, though, that sleeping problems are the are causing the stroke. I think it's perhaps an underlying circumstance, an underlying situation. So if you want to be at your best, the report found sleep under five hours long or sleep more than nine hours long or unplanned naps. If you're one of those people that have unplanned naps, I don't. I plan my naps out. Absolutely. I, I absolutely plan my naps out because it's, you know, something I look forward to. It's like a treat for my body. And I've always been the believer, maybe I'm wrong, love to hear from you, but maybe I'm wrong. I've always been the believer that as you get a little bit older, it's not such a terrible thing to have a nap during the day, especially if your body 
calls for it. Now, I, I have a father, thank God, he's uh, in his very late 90s um, and still, you know, strong as an ox, thankfully. And, um, you know, he kind of sleeps like a teenager, right? He's kind of uh, kind of sleeps during, uh, <laughs> during the day and is up at night watching TV. But uh, if you're not sleeping like a teenager, you're probably in better shape. Let's hear what Dennis has to say. He lives in Mississauga in Ontario here, and he's on the line with us tonight. Hi, Dennis. How you doing? Yeah, hey, I'm great. How are you? I'm good. So you sleep you sleep more than nine hours or less than five hours a night? Um, it, it, it's, uh, you know, usually less, uh, you know, less than five sometimes. Yeah, like, unfortunately, you know, have a hard time falling asleep sometimes. So what do you what do you do? What have you talked to? By the way, have you talked to anybody about that sort of how you get better sleep? Have you talked to your doctor or a therapist or anybody like that? Uh, well, yeah, you know, like I did some research, um, you know, just, uh, you know, nothing really seemed to help. Like, I'm not really sure what the cause is. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, tricky. I just, uh, lay in okay. bed for like two or three hours. Sometimes I just can't fall asleep. Okay. So stick with me here. We're going to help you and we'll just step away from the article for a minute because it can wait. Let's talk to you, right? So let's talk about your sleep. So a couple hours before sleep. So typically give me an idea of what time you start going to sleep at night. Uh, like nine ten usually. Nine ten, and and you got to get up to go to work in the morning. So what time does your day start in the morning? I assume you go to work in the morning. What time does your day start in the morning? Uh, just you know nine to five. Nine to five. So what time do you need to get up to be ready? Uh, I uh, usually get up at like uh, six seven. Six or seven. Okay. So you're having a hard time falling asleep at night. You're getting to sleep around 9.30, 9.30, 10 o'clock, you say. And what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing, um, Dennis, leading up to uh, leading up to going to sleep? Uh, well, you know, just uh, check my email, um, you know. Uh, a little, you know, a little TV. Watch some YouTube, yeah, a little TV, some Netflix, uh, you know, just uh, have a little snack perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're perfect. You're, I, I couldn't have I couldn't have asked for a better caller because we're going to get into into all of this. So uh, the article says what I'm about to share with you in 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 a nutshell. So number one, uh, the con you, the first thing you talked about was lying in bed for three hours, you know, a couple two three hours trying to fall asleep. Yeah. So I, I'm going to tell you that that's no good. That doesn't work. If you're not able to fall asleep. And you give yourself, you know, 20 minutes, a half an hour of, you know, kind of tossing and turning and trying to find yourself that comfort zone. Um, you got to get out of bed. You got to get out of bed, maybe, you know, have something warm to drink, um, you know, maybe just stretch your legs for a little bit, you know, sit in a chair and read a little bit. Um, you need to help your body get tired. And it's not going to happen when you lie in bed, because if you're like me, man, and you're trying yeah. to get to sleep, but you can't, then you start getting anxious about not being able to sleep, right? Oh, yeah, yes, yes, I do. Yes, I can't sleep. I got to sleep. How am I going to get up in the morning? You start to sort of internally, exactly. you start to yes, freak yes. out, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm gonna, we're going to teach you some things here. Number one, you need to stop eating at least two hours before you go to bed. Trust me, I've been oh. working on I've been working on this my whole life. I'm a big snacker, but you got to try to stop eating at least two hours before you go to sleep. Number one, try this, right? Uh, number two, yeah. um, you need to give yourself at least I would say some people say an hour and a half. I would say at least forty five minutes of no screen time. 
So for me, what that means is I'm listening to music. Maybe I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, um, I, you know, I'm reading something. I find that reading makes me tired. Um, I'm listening to soft music. So I get, so about an hour before I'm ready to go to bed, I, I get myself into, cause I also have issues with like sleeping like you do. Um, and you know, I need to get my sleep to be, to be sharp, just like you do. So I try to get myself ready for sleep. So I work at it. Work at it means I stop screen time. I don't eat two hours before I go to sleep. I definitely don't check my email because it's usually never good. Nobody sends you good stuff at night. They usually send you stuff that's usually problem related or, or a pro, you know, oh, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. No, anything good they get you in the morning, but usually the crappy stuff you get kind of later at night. So we're going to, you and I, you're going to, what you're going to do is you're going to try this. And then hopefully next week you're going to call me back on the show and either call me on the show or send me a text message to the same number you just called just to let me know how this works out. So we're going to get off the TV at least an hour. We're going to get the blue screen away from you for at least 60 minutes before you go to bed. You're going to get food out of your system at least two hours before you go to sleep. You're going to learn to breathe a little bit, do some, some breathing techniques and learn how to meditate a little bit. You're just going to calm yourself down. And you're going to try it for a week and see if you can improve your sleep. And if you can or can't, you're going to let me know next weekend. How's that? Sound like a good deal? Yeah, that sounds terrific. Okay, buddy. Try those. They're easy things to do, and I'm sure you can put it together. Um, so I hope you're all listening out there. And, and, and you know, it's important that that uh, Dennis is able to do it. And this is the kind of stuff I do for myself. So if you're listening, try to deploy these same kinds of thoughts. Get off your screen. Don't eat two hours before you go to bed. Do some soft breathing, some soft music before bedtime. Work at getting ready for sleep as opposed to lying in bed and work at trying to fall asleep. You know, we're talking all about work-life balance. Everybody's talking about work-life balance. It seems to be kind of the you know, one of the new chats that we're all kind of onto these days, but it's a big deal. Because I know a lot of folks that are trying to create a career for themselves and working real hard at being at their best and being champions and so on, uh, but they forget that that includes having a life. So when you tell somebody, you know, some of the co people I coach in uh, in the um, in the work world um, that aren't, you know, suffering from mental health or addiction, but it's coaching, performance coaching work that I do, various forms, different companies, different types of people, sales and otherwise. And I tell them the same thing. If you can't do a great job in the eight hours that's allotted for you or the eight hours in the day that you're given, you're not doing your job right. You got to be able to make your cheese, make your money, work real hard and get it done when it's time to do it. And that means then being able to go and have a life. And when I tell them, hey, you got to have a life. I do have a life, Yoda. I work my 10 hours a day. Then I go to the gym. Then I come home. I have something to eat, watch a little TV and go to bed. No, that's not a life according to the studies that are out there. Certainly not a life according to what I think you should have. L listen, if you've ever heard the show 30 Rock, listen to what Alec Baldwin's character as he's talking with, uh, with Tina Fey about her relationships and work-life balance. Have a listen here. Human contact is important, Lemon. I can tell from your stress level that you have not been touched in any way in quite some time. Not caressed, not massaged, not even groped on the subway. Where are you headed with this? Your mood affects the quality of your work, which in turn affects me. I would like to become a resource to you for improving your personal life. Well, there you go. Uh, great show. But, you know, the difficulty is that work takes up about a third of a person's life. But some people have extreme difficulty separating their professional lives from their personal life. And that includes not developing lasting or meaningful relationships or leaning, you know, could lean towards a little bit of substance abuse. They have to learn how to relax. It's just not a really good thing. And my guest this evening or is Patrick Ryan. 
He's a relationship coach and the founder of Wingman For You. It's a lifestyle and dating coach website directed towards professional men who have neglected their social and romantic life and want a change. Welcome to the show, Patrick. I appreciate you being here. Well, well uh, uh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so 77% of employees have experienced burnout. 72% of workers believe work-life balance is a very important factor when choosing a job. 50%, 57% of job seekers say poor work-life balance is a deal breaker. 43% remote workers work over 40 hours a week, more off-site than on-site. Personal perfectionism is up. Uh, most people think that it's part of a major barrier to work, 67% of workers. Buddy, what's going on out there with this work-life balance and why do we need to take it seriously? Oh, well, first of all, simply is um, humans love to be connected. We love to have partners. We love to have somebody that's in our life that's important, that uh, makes a difference in our attitude. And we oftentimes carry that to the workspace. And imagine somebody works so much that they have very little time for their friends or family or any sort of romantic partners. That's a very shallow, hollow, meaningless life. So do you find that people that don't have time to, by the way, I, I, I would agree, you know, I, I'm, I'm totally on side with you. Do you find that people are that you, don't Are you have, one of those people, by the way? Um, no, <laughs> thank God I'm not. I, I try, I, I drink my own Kool-Aid, so I, I practice what I preach, uh, so I never get caught off guard. But I, listen, there was a time when I was younger, for sure. Uh, where, you know, I would yeah. grind more, more hours. But for me, I was kind of driven by helping as many people as possible. Not that that made it any better, but um, it, whether it's a pursuit of cash or pursuit of something else, I, I totally agree with you that I, I certainly was one of those. I'm not today. I've learned how to appreciate life a little bit more. But uh, let me get back to asking you the question. So Congrat congratulations. That, <laughs> thank you. Well, I'm listen, I'm uh, not that I don't have coaches and people that are helping me too. But listen, what I, the people that don't have Good time food. for relationships, are they the same yes. people that don't have time for self-care? Oh, my God. You're hitting the nail on the head. See, that's why I got Absolutely. the show. So <laughs> there was a time in my life, I'm talking about um, decades ago, when I was raising a family, and I put my family first. And then it was all about work, right? It was all done. It was all about making money, making sort of sure supporting my family. And this is, and I, and I hate to say this, this is typically a masculine thing. It's typically a man thing where we just, we, we got to provide and we do. And, and, you know, America is a land of opportunity and in some third, third world countries and other countries around the globe is a little bit more challenging, but the reality is, is if you as a human being cannot be the best you can be, then you can't be the best you can be for anybody that's important in your life. So let's just look at that. Let's, let, let's just say you're a business owner and you, you, you are spending 60, 70 hours a week or more focused on running your business and providing for your family. Well, if you're not taking care of yourself first, then you're not being everything you can be with everybody that's important to you. And that could be your peers, 
in your business. It could be your spouse. It could be your children. It could be your parents. It could be your entire So until you are 100% focused on what's right for you, you cannot be 100% to anybody else. I love it. I love it. Now I know why you're a relationship coach. Um, let me ask you a question. Just to flip this backwards. <laughs> Thank for you, a minute. So You asked me a personal question. Sure. Let me ask you, how do you become a relationship coach? And it's got to be uh, a difficult gig, no? I'm sorry. It's got to be what? A difficult gig, a difficult job. Well, I would say no. So I'll focus on the difficulty first. Um, difficulty, yes. Difficult in the sense that oftentimes I'll get stuck in their ways. They get stuck with what identifies with themselves, oftentimes their work. And they don't, or I should say they lack the priority of getting focused on themselves and getting focused on what's important to them. And you got to realize, and, and I think perhaps all your listeners realize that without a good quality relationship, I mean, let's say romantic relationship, you, us humans tend to, we tend to become depressed. We, we tend to become lonely. We tend to become alone without a demanding, fun, romantic relationship. You know, long walk's a good thing to do every day. A little exercise helps you with some of that work-life balance. Uh, when men over-identify with their careers, they lack relationship success. According to my guest, he's an expert. His name is Patrick Ryan. We call him Coach Ryan. He has an organization called Wingman for You. He's the founder. Uh, excellent organization for men that are looking to get some real work-life balance. Uh, work easily consumes a third of a person's time. 70% of professionals report that their work defines their personal sense of purpose. That's a win-win if you're in business with them, but not so good if you're looking to separate, you know, separate and have some type of relationship. And according to Coach Ryan, my goal with each client is to help them forge a lasting romantic relationship with the women of his dreams. Even though many of my clients are very successful professionally, our starting out point is often building the social confidence that allows them allows him to organically approach women in social settings and expand the conversation without putting pressure on outcomes. Coach Ryan, it's all about feeling comfortable in your own skin, right? And whether you're motivated inside or oh. outside. Uh, absolutely. You, you know, the last thing you want is to fall in love with a woman who falls in love with you when you're not being you are. Yeah, like a pretend guy, right? Pretend person. Yeah, let you know. Let, let's and I got to tell you, when you when you focus your identity on your work, and you become your your identity becomes who you are at work and your leadership abilities, and you may be fantastic. The challenges is who, like who who are who are you who are you in a romantic emotional perspective as opposed to a critical but some people yeah go ahead go ahead no i was gonna say some people find it much easier to be a superstar at work and to, to my point yes. in the outset here uh much more difficult sometimes when you're getting into that social setting uh talk to us a little bit about that and how oh. you help 
how you help people gain that that you know that boardroom confidence um, in a in a one on one setting when they're meeting somebody to be potentially romantically involved with. That that's a and in I I can tell you this I'll be quite frank there's no one answer everybody's different so let's just first take that executive that business leader head who is very focused has been very very instrumental in changing and improving their business their work atmosphere they they've continually progressed their career up the ladder and they've been focused on that for so many years and often don't know how to communicate with somebody they become emotionally attached to. So basically when you're talking about stuff at work, you're talking about a project, you're talking about something related to your job, you know, your, you know, whatever it is you do for a living. Um, that's kind of an easier conversation to have than when someone says, so what do you like to do in your off time? And the answer is work. <laughs> oh my God. I, I, somewhere around 75 or 65% of the employees in the United States will answer that question that I'm a workaholic. Yeah. And quite frankly, that may be great for their career, but oftentimes they're really avoiding something and they're avoiding their emotions. They're avoiding their responses to love and to having a strong, enjoyable, worthy relationship with somebody else. You think that's about emotional risk, buddy? You think that's you know? You think it's about you oh. know not being able to hide behind you know your glory at work, and you actually have to share. Uh, is this, is that about emotional risk? Do you think? That's a great question. I can't tell how many executives, how many business owners I've talked to who said the reason why I'm doing this is to prove to my that I'm not who they say I am. As opposed to saying, I really want a fantastic life. I want to make a lot of money. I want to lead this business into the next stratosphere and fantastic home life. They oftentimes just slide aside that home life. They slide aside what's really important to them. Perhaps even in some cases, they may not feel as happy of having a great romantic relationship. And so they prove themselves by having a fantastic company, by building incredible wealth. In some cases, yeah. not having anybody to leave it to, not having yeah, a well, legacy to, to leave behind. Or anybody to enjoy it with, right? To have, you know, it's one thing to make, to make a bunch of cheese, but if you don't have anybody you know meaningful what? to share when with. When I spend yeah. money, I love, yeah, when I spend money, I love spending it with me and my wife. I, I love spent with the woman I, I, I I'm atta attached to whether it's something casual going out for lunch for a sandwich or whether it's something exciting. I was just watching the Kings game tonight and how exciting would that be to be there in person on the floor with somebody you really care about? You know, and I get that. And some people just have a fear of that kind of intimacy, as I'm sure you find every day. And that's why you do your job and I'm sure do it very well. But not every job's nine to five, man. So what, how, do you, how do you 
kind of how do you find that balance if it's not built in for you? Uh, that's yeah, it, it, there's the real challenge. That you, you've you've asked the the hundred eighty five thousand dollar question is that that's the real challenge. How do you how do you find the time? How do you how do you make the commitment? How do you really answer the question that I'm really worthy of love, and I'm going to I'm going to set aside some time, or I'm going to make the time to find somebody that perhaps for men is the woman of your dreams, and. And that's probably the number one challenge is that when men come to me, Patrick, you know, I, I'm alone. I'm, I'm, I'm lonely. I, I want someone in my life. And I, the first question I asked him, are you really committed to that for yourself? Are you really so committed to yourself that you're willing to give up something to find the woman of your dreams? So let me ask you a question. Is there a particular industry that you found where individuals over, well, males in this case, over-identify uh, with their careers, like maybe finance, entertainment, tech? Is there a particular industry that's more consuming than others? Quite frankly, no. It, it's, it really has to do with the mindset. Often where I don't feel like I'm worthy of having a great partner or they're having to try to prove something to somebody else. And again, I, I business owners, business leaders, executives are fantastic people. They are driven. They are focused. They are, they are totally engaged with what they do, but oftentimes they set aside that personal satisfaction of really setting aside the loneliness and wanting to be with somebody. You think it's a, you think it's a, if, if you can put a professional person together with another professional person, much better chance of connecting or maybe opposites attract. What do you think? Oh, well, first of all, opposites absolutely attract. My wife is a, she's, uh, takes a, a thousand different um, scenarios to make one decision. And it could be something about as simple as what's going to be the appetizer today, right? <laughs> Gary is very right. open, uh, very spontaneous, have a lot of fun. Uh, she has a lot of fun too, but it's, it's usually after she's worked really hard, for instance. So um, I don't know that there's personality type. I don't know that there's one leadership type that experiences the same thing. Uh, I'm, I'm here to help men find their true love and do it in a way can be comfortable and can be authentic. We're talking about, you know, work-life balance with Coach Ryan a little bit ago. Uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about grandparenting and what happens when more and more grandparents are chasing fewer and fewer grandkids because, let's face it, a lot of people aren't having as many kids or sometimes any kids because of financial restraints or restraints to their lifestyle or whatever. So there's 
I think less kids for grandparents to chase than there used to be. My favorite subject, by the way, I am a proud grandparent. I have a granddaughter and a grandson. Uh, both are amazing. Just uh, saw them uh, yesterday for dinner. Uh, get to see them regularly, get to hang with them pretty much whenever we want, my wife and I. We do that sometimes together. We do that sometimes independently whenever life allows it. But part of my work-life balance going forward in the in the future includes spending more time with my grandchildren as life allows me to take more time off perhaps during the day um, I plan to show up and uh, obviously with them knowing you know take them for lunch at lunchtime pick them up after school go do something cool go get an ice cream or whatever I get a big buzz from being a grandparent I learn a lot from my grandchildren they keep me feeling relevant they keep me feeling somewhat cool in terms of tuned in and at the end of the day, you know, it's really a lot of fun. Have a listen to this. Uh, this is a clip of a grandparent playing with a little bit, a little baby. Leo, why don't you play this? This is your diaper. Pew! <laughs> I got to take this out. Pew! you. Yeah, okay. So uh, that's one way to play with your grandchild. Um, you know, I never I, met, I never found the dirty diaper I couldn't change. I was actually pretty good at it back in the day. Uh, fortunately, everybody in my life, you know, doesn't have to wear a diaper so far. And uh, so we're in good shape. But, you know, it's a lot of fun to play with my kids. And we do, my grandkids, and we do things that I didn't do with my children. I mean, not that I didn't do things with my children. I think I was a pretty active parent. I still think I'm a pretty active parent. But I do more silly things with my grandchildren, I think, than I ever did with my, my kids. Um, I think I'm at a sillier stage in my life as I get older. I'm allowed to be a little more vulnerable, a little sillier. Parents are, you know, kind of toe the line. It's hard for you to be the, you know, the disciplinarian when you're you know, also joking around. By the way, the role of a grandparent isn't to discipline their grandchildren by, you know, we're supposed to spoil them. And if you never heard that before, you're hearing it from me. We're the ones that give them candy and chocolate and let them stay up late and play and do things that they can't do at home. That's the benefit of being a grandparent. But you know what? When I was growing up and I had some troubles and you know trials and tribulations and troubles in my life, my grandparents were, some, were the, two of the people I first turned to. My grandfather uh, was a very smart man, a uh, hardworking guy, came up through a pretty difficult life, and uh, but just an all-around smart guy. And I learned to go to him and to my grandmom when I was having issues with my own parents. And I want that for my grandchildren. And I told my wife, I told her, Pumpkin, I said, you know, we want to we want to make sure that when our grandchildren are 15, 16, 17, and they hate their parents, that they've got someplace to come because it's going to happen. Right. I've been doing this for a long time. I've been working with kids for decades and at some point in time, they hate their parents for whatever reason. Uh, not anything real, usually. But uh, when life isn't going the way you want it to, it's easier to blame it on somebody else. Um, so, you know, uh, something you got to bear in mind with. But we're finding out that college educated women over 40 have less than 3% chance of getting married, leading to the famous, it's easier to be killed by a terrorist than it is to find a husband from the line in Sleepless in Seattle. If you haven't seen the movie, it's great. Um, but Canada's a peak parent is at peak grandparent capacity. There's a record of 7.5 million of us right now, up from 5.4 in 1995. But, you know, the, the benefit of being able to have time with your grandchild is really twofold, actually threefold. It's a benefit to you for sure, because you get to spend the time with, you know, 
people in your life that love you unconditionally. I think my grandchildren, I would say, love me unconditionally. I don't think they have, make the same kind of judgments that adults in my life might make. So for sure, I think they, they love you more unconditionally than perhaps your, your children did in a different way. Um, grandchildren also benefit from what you can teach them from your wisdom and years of experience. So there's a twofold uh, winner there. And three, to get you the trifecta of why it's a great plan to spend time with your grandchildren, if you're fortunate to have them. And if you're not, we're going to tell you what you can do with that too here in a minute. But if you're fortunate enough to have them and you can spend time with them, but perhaps you don't because you're busy, you don't make the time. It's part of that whole work-life balance or retirement life balance because you don't get to do it again, right? Grandchildren are like your second time around where all the things you did wrong with your kids, perhaps you get to do differently with your grandchildren. You get to, it's like a do-over without the hassle and all the same grief that you have raising children sometimes when they're, you know, when they're living with you all the time. It's nice to be able to send them home after a couple of days and, you know, hopefully it had some positive impact. And the third part of the trifecta is that it impacts positively your children who are the parents of these grandchildren. So it's a win for everybody. So you have to make the time. It's important to find the time. You know, the ability for us to spend time with loved ones is so is so remarkable today that, you know, we had to have learned coming out of the pandemic when we weren't able to see the people in our lives that are so important. And now that we can, we need to cherish that because we now we know what it feels like to have that taken away. And I missed a whole bunch of birthdays and a whole bunch of, of, of you know, religious holidays and, you know, a whole bunch of time with my grandchildren that I wasn't able to have because we couldn't be with them. We couldn't be together during the pandemic. And we learned how to video chat and all that stuff. We, you know, we stayed in touch for sure. We used to, my wife and I would go visit on the front lawn and wave to them or they'd be on the porch, you know, like a driveway away from us so we could wave at each other and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, being away from my grandchildren was probably more difficult than being away from anybody else in my life at that time. And, you know, we're finding that more and more people are not hiring people to take care of their children. Some people are, you know, some young people are actually moving in or having their, their parents move in with them when it's time for, you know, for people at certain age to kind of scale down or, you know, downsize, I think is what they call it, right? So a lot of families are living together, three generations. I think that's remarkable if you can make it work and you have the right space to do it. There was a period of time where my children, myself and my parents all lived under the same roof. There was a period of time actually where my children and one grandchild and my grandparents and I all lived under the same roof. So there's something to be said for that. We see it a lot more in uh, European-based families, people that come from a different culture where this is a part, it's a natural part. We don't do that so much in, in Canadian culture, but certainly should be because you can't supplant grandparent time. You can't find that. There's no nanny out there that's going to re replace a grandma or a bubby or a nano or, or whatever you call your grandmother or your grandfather in your culture. You can't replace it. You know, I, in my culture, I'm a Zadie. Some people call it a grandpa. In, in Hebrew, it means the word is Saba. But either way, there's no one that's going to replace Zadie, no matter what happens. They have one Zadie. They also have a grandfather. But there's a difference, right? They know me for me and they know him for him. Two different relationships. But from the most part, we want to make sure that the children in our lives get the right modeled behavior. And when you get older, you have time to do that. When you get older, you have time to tell them stories about what you were like when you were a little girl or a little boy or what life was like growing up for you in high school or middle school or public school. In my house, we don't have so many Yona stories from the, my youth because 
really not so proud of that period of time. But certainly tell a lot of stories of my early 20s and 30s and so on. And my wife, who was an angel growing up, and she was a beauty queen and a princess and all that. I mean, can you imagine having a grandmother who's got a princess crown, right? A real one was actually a princess in princess clothing. My granddaughter just looks at her with awe. And my grandson just thinks I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread because I help people. How many people did you help today, Zadie? Right? He's all about helping people. He's so kind. He's so considerate. He just wants to do what he can to make people's lives easier. Sometimes that requires him to get picked on at school, but, you know, he's toughening up a little bit. My point is it's irreplaceable time. We need to find that life balance, work-life balance, retirement life balance, where we spend the time with our loved ones, especially the, lee, the wee little ones who need that input, who need us. You can't replace us with anybody else. So if you've got them, love them. And if you don't, find some that you can help out with. Neighbor kids, you can, you can also, uh, you can also uh, donate some time. Or you can volunteer at different places. You know, get some little kids in your life. It makes a huge difference. They make you smile. They make you laugh. They make you cry. Nothing better. I'm telling you, they're the greatest things since sliced bread. talking about making time for your grandkids if you have them or perhaps don't you know volunteering some time in a youth organization where you can sort of adopt grandchildren so to speak in a in a um, in a volunteer kind of way uh, but you know having young people in our lives as we get older is a very positive thing very positive for us and very positive for the child if you're able to make that time and that experience valuable because if it's valuable for you, it'll be valuable for them. It kind of works both ways, right? Um, I once told somebody, if you want to chat with a child, um, you got to get down to their level. So, for example, if you're dealing with a little person, you know, a little child that's, you know, maybe a couple, two, three feet tall, get down to your knees when you're talking to them. If that, that kind of equals out your, your, your height or put them on a chair so they can see you eye to eye, so to speak. You know, it's it's a good way to go. It treat treat them as you would want to be treated if you were a child, which is kind of eye to eye, right? In terms of being looked at and 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 communicated on that level. Tell parents all the time, you know, who complain to me about their kids, all they ever want to do is play video games, and they they never come up for dinner. They we never sit around as a family anymore. So I tell one of the parents, okay, one of you's got to pick, you know, scissors, paper, rock. Whoever just whoever wins or loses depends on how you set it up. Um, has to start spending time with their kids playing video games. Because if that's where your kids are, that's where you need to be. So in order to make your kids great or your grandchildren great and turn them into champions at worth at least so they feel like they're champions, they feel like they're the greatest of themselves, that the greatest that they can be, you got to do a bunch of things. And last week we talked about the things you can give them. There's a whole list of things you can give to a child, goals, vision, dreams, support, all that kind of stuff. We did a, a whole segment about it. So this week we're going to talk about what you can teach them. Because we have an opportunity with children to teach them things. Have an opportunity with everyone in our lives, frankly. But with children, they're much more pliable, much more receptive, a lot less judgy typically. And you have the opportunity to share from your experiences. And, you know, how many times if your kid said, hey, ma, hey, dad, you know, tell me a story about when you went to high school or, hey, grandpa, tell me, you know, whatever. They're looking for those stories, A, because they want to know more about you. Um, so try to make them a little juicy, a little funny where you can. But at the same time, they also want to understand that life for them isn't so complicated compared to maybe what life was like for you or the other way around. So we want to teach our kids about nutrition, about eating well. 
And in order to teach them how to eat well, I know, I know, you're shaking your head. Yeah, the kids are into candy and cookies and popcorn. And I just finished saying in the earlier segment, as a grandparent, we're the ones that are supposed to give them, you know, the treats and the candy. But I'll tell you something. My wife gives my grandkids plenty of treats, but they're balanced. They, with, with every treat they have, they have to have a couple of veggies or a couple of pieces of fruit or something somewhat healthy, right, to kind of balance it off. So we teach our grandchildren about nutrition by how we eat specifically more how my wife eats in terms of how she's careful about what she eats in terms of making sure she has the right nutrition and the right amount of, uh, of valued uh, vitamins and carbs and all the right balance, right? It's all about good balance. We also want to teach our kids about finance. You know, we give our ch grandchildren money for various things. Uh, and, you know, whether it's birthdays or doing well, I, I still believe in bribing my children and grandchildren to get good marks. I'm glad to make that investment now. And uh, so we get them, you know, 10 bucks, 20 bucks for an A or whatever, whatever the, the current rate of inflation. But we teach them about what to do with that money. Certainly their grandmother does, more, much more so than I do. So I think my, my, my wife does a really excellent job about explaining to our children that what things cost and the relation to that, what that cost is in relation to, um, you know, a gift they might have gotten or something so they can put some value together. So when you teach them about finance, it's not talking about doing their taxes. It's about appreciating the value of a dollar. And when they can earn it by doing some work or cleaning up in the kitchen after dinner, if there's a whole bunch of people here for dinner, we'll give each of them 10 bucks, perhaps if they clean up after to help out their grandmother, right? So teach them about finance that way. Depends on how old they are. Teach them about exercise. Both of my grandchildren are, are into exercise, their dad and their and their mom and everyone in their families. Um, they have two sets of parents. Uh, both are both sets of parents are into fitness and, and taking care of themselves, right? So they do that. You want to make sure you teach your kids about sleep, not you don't just tell them it's time to go to bed because I said so. It's time to go to bed because at your age, you need X amount of hours. And that way you'll be able to do this, 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 and this. And we want you to turn your screen off because makes it easier for you to sleep. It's healthier for your sleep and so on. You'll have less bad dreams and all that kind of stuff, right? So teaching them about nutrition, you're teaching them about finance, just in everyday life. It's not like you have to sit down with them and say, okay, today we're going to talk about sleep. You do it at sleep time. And when you do your exercises, you get them to exercise with you. You know, my eldest son is uh, big into CrossFit training. You know, he has two little kids, my two grandchildren. He takes them with them, either one at a time or both, to the gym that he works out. And they do their own little CrossFit program, which, by the way, is pretty cool, I think. You also want to teach your children about or grandchildren about relationships. You want to teach the young people in your life about relationships and what they mean. Not that, you know, well, when you grow up, you're going to find such and such. Or when you grow up, you're going to do such and such. But what relationships mean what they mean to you, what the relationship with them means to you. You know, my relationship with you as my son means this to me. I'm so fortunate to have a relationship with you because it means this to me, because I'm able to do this. I value it because of that. You getting the drift here, buddy? The way this all works is you got to share. You got to actually hang out with them, share information, talk to them straight up about these important things. Hygiene. When my grandson mostly, my granddaughter is pretty cool, but my grandson sometimes forgets to maybe clean himself up after a busy day at school if he comes and sees us too soon. And it's like, buddy, you stink. You know, I'll just tell him, man, you stink. And, you know, and I'll tell him, I know what that feels like because when I don't do what I need to do, I stink too. And I don't like it. 
So we, we talk about it in a joking way. You never make them feel uncomfortable about it. Their grandmother is very keen on how to wash your hands properly, how to do your nails when they sleep over, you know, what, you know, bath time, shower time, you know, what we're trying to gain there in terms of all the right, you know, basically washing all the right parts, right? They're children. You got to teach them this stuff. This is the one I really like. And, you know, I'm not sure how much time we'll get into, but we'll do this. We're going to continue this for a few weeks, but this is the one I kind of really hang myself on. You got to teach them to defend themselves verbally and sometimes physically. I know you're looking at them, looking at me going in, in, in the radio or whatever you're listening to at home on the computer or whatever. You're thinking your phone. You think, wow, did he just say you got to teach your kids how to fight? That's not what I said. What I said is you need to teach your children or grandchildren, the young people in your life, how to defend themselves verbally and if necessary, physically. I'll tell you something. But both my youngest sons, when they were born, you're your part. And uh, they were born, they required the need to wear glasses. They had a need to wear glasses. They had poor eyesight. One of them still wears glasses. Actually, they both do. But, you know, one more really needed them badly. The other one, not so bad when they were younger. And, you know, I taught them right away how to defend themselves if someone tries to take your glasses off your face. Their mother wasn't really happy about it, but I was pretty happy about it. And I don't think they ever actually had to use that skill for the most part. Maybe my middle son did once. Uh, he was probably the least likely one to want to do it, but he probably did it. So you have to teach them how to defend themselves, how to stand up for themselves, to make them feel good about who they are and that they can protect themselves both with their words and, if necessary, with their hands. And the way you do that is through a proper program, a proper karate program or judo or jiu-jitsu or, you know, kung fu. Some type of martial art is probably the best way to go, where there's a discipline, where it's part of a routine, it's part of a system. But I don't think there's anything wrong with your children being able to defend themselves, especially in this day and age. I think it's something that we need to spend a lot more time thinking about. Are our kids safe? And how do we keep, help, help them keep themselves safe, especially with what's going on out there? A lot of stuff that we need to worry about in this country, in this world in particular, but in this country for sure. Our story uh, that we're going to talk about are really something that bugs me, so I thought we'd chat about it here together tonight. Um, we're talking about a situation where I happen to be reading uh, an article in one of the current uh, Toronto newspapers about a particular police officer. It doesn't matter to get even get into the story and about how this person's been, you know, sort of on trial and, you know, sort of waiting on trial and so on for almost three years. And during that three year period, this particular officer was receiving, still receiving, I think to date, receiving their full paycheck, um, which I kind of just find, sits in my craw, not nicely, <clears throat> don't like it at law. So the Solicitor General says Ontario policing law should be enacted as soon as possible. That's according to Ontario Solicitor General, Michael Kersner, um, good guy. Um, we're ta He's talking about a consult, he's working on consult consultations to, to end the policy, to, to, to create a, a policy um, that they're trying to create where this isn't the case where if you're convicted of an offense or you're suspended for whatever reason, you're not, you know, you're not keeping your job, right? It just, well, listen here. Listen to Jose Cotto. He's the Ontario police spokesperson on behalf of the Ontario Police Association. Talks about why the public must find it problematic when a cop is suspended and still receives their pay. Have a listen. 
And I think the frustrating part for for ordinary Ontarians is that it, it doesn't happen anywhere else that uh, an employee that is uh, found to be uh, uh, unsuitable to remain in employment is is pretty well dismissed. But police officers aren't like that. So that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about cops in Ontario. It's the only place I believe, uh, certainly the only place in Canada. I don't know about the world, uh, but you know, it doesn't make sense that if you're not working because you've been basically put in the, uh, on the back burner for whatever reason, usually related to a crime or some kind of um, uh, act that is um, not uh, acceptable within the policing, they continue to get their, their payments. One of these guys was on the, one of these people was on the, um, Sunshine list in Ontario here, uh, earning more than uh, he made one hundred and twenty-one thousand dollars one year uh, while he wasn't working and on suspension. My my guest tonight is Patrick Watson. He's the associate professor of criminology at Wilfrid Laurier University. Um, Patrick, this is like mind-boggling. Like, how, how does this even? How does this even happen? Well, that's that's a good question, Yona. Uh, it, it happened a long time ago, um, back in 1990, with the passing of the Ontario Police Services Act. Uh, and to be honest with you, I was just a bit of a sprout back then, so uh, I'm not quite sure what it went into the deliberation. But uh, I would imagine that probably some of the thought there was that um, policing can be a, a very complicated job. Um, it can be a risky job, and uh, if people don't like what you're doing as a police officer. They're, some of them might not be the most ethical people on the face of the earth, and they might uh, level some accusations at you that, uh, you know, uh, they, they might not have been uh, with the most sincere intentions, let's say. And I would imagine that was probably some of the thinking back in 1990 when the Police Services Act was initially passed. So, okay, so let me, let's go there together for a bit, okay? So let's talk about this. If if what we're talking about here is someone says, you know, such and such an officer, you know, came into my store, came into my business, or stopped me on the street and did this, 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 and this, and then, you know, some form of allegations, some form of, of complaint, right? And then, you know, perhaps that person was then put on the sidelines because it's part of the process and doesn't get paid. So maybe they allowed for that. But I'm talking about guys, I'm talking about officers that are red-handed, have the drugs in their hand, are videotaped breaking the law, you know, known to be, you know, rapists and criminals and whatever in different cases, not all of them, obviously, but in many, many of these cases. And when they're caught, quote unquote, red-handed, so to speak, and they're just in the system, they're still collecting a full paycheck. Um, I know we're trying to change it, but how do you, how, how, do, how does the world stomach it in the meantime? Well, for, for what it's worth, uh, I have known a few officers over the years who have been caught red-handed. Um, they worked very challenging jobs. They were uh, doing, uh, so this is a, a number of them, were doing uh, either uh, pretty heavy-duty policing, SWAT-type policing, uh, who were investigated by the SIU for shooting incidents, and other other officers I've known have worked jobs like deep cover and have been involved in the drug trade as an officer and gotten caught up in the drug trade and using drugs as a result. And and in my experience, I've seen it go both ways, that I've seen some folks uh, uh, pushed through the the uh, SIU process at the, the pace that the SIU works at. And uh, the SIU resolves 97% of their cases with uh, the, the SIU is, of course, the provincial watchdog that investigates allegations of criminal conduct by police officers uh if it's uh somebody's been injured or if somebody's been killed by the police they'll investigate uh or if somebody alleges sexual assault and the siu investigates 
and and that takes quite a bit of time. Uh, the other processes that can occur are the uh, onto, uh, the office of the independent police review directorate. That's if you have a conduct complaint uh, that uh, an officer has said something to you that you think is offensive or uh, that you're alleging uh, a non-violent crime against the officer, they might uh, uh, refer that matter back to another police service to investigate. And of course, those investigations take time. When an officer has transgressed the law, for example, um, uh, if they have been working deep cover and uh, have been uh, caught consuming drugs, let's say, uh, in my experience, those officers are dealt with relatively quickly. Uh, this case that, that we've been hearing about uh, in this Toronto newspaper, uh, we had the officer initially charged for one offense uh, and convicted, uh, and then waiting for due process for a sentencing to occur and collecting a salary through that time, and then committing another very, very heinous offense in the interim, that's something that I've never come across before. It's not to say that it hasn't happened, but it's to say that that was, seems like a very, very exceptional case. But that said, I, I think we've seen the, the political impetus that recognizes from both the previous government and the current government that this is not a sustainable system. It's not uh, fostering good confidence from the public, as, as uh, your commenter earlier there was saying. I believe you, you said that was the... Uh, the chair of the Ontario Police Association. Mm -hmm. So I think we're seeing this move towards more accountability for officers, both in the the 2018 revisions to the the, uh, Police Services Act, as well as now the 2019 revisions. But you would think, you know, if this was something that's for the benefit of quality policing, lots of other people would be doing it. How do we end up only in Ontario, right? How does it end up just in Ontario that this is something that exists? It's, uh, it is a unique Ontario problem in Canada uh, that uh, officers can't be suspended without pay. Uh, my guess would be that back in 1990, there was a much more organized police association that, made, that was able to lobby for those changes. One of the reasons why I would make that guess is because what we see from our friends in the United States is there's a very, very different handling for misconduct complaint processes between right-to-work states and states that maintain union legislation. So particularly in the South, and this is through the work of Phil Stinson, who's a criminologist at Bowling Green University, who showed that disciplinary procedures move much more quickly, especially in Southern states that are predominantly right-to-work states, where individual officers might not have the strong union protection of, say, Illinois or New York, or other states where you have a very strong presence of the Fraternal Order of Police and other police unions who are there to really sort of push police interests forward and police employment interests in particular, and ensuring that Police officers have very, very strong tenure of position, uh, even when allegations are made against them. So Ontario likely got caught up in that situation as well. We're talking about why it's so hard to get rid of a cop in Ontario and why you're waiting to get rid of them for whatever reason. They break the law or they're insubordinate or whatever. You're trying to get rid of them. you got to pay these people. They're staying on your budget. They're staying on your on your, on your payroll, payroll, whether they're there putting in their time or not. I think it sucks. Listen to what the Ontario Solicitor General, Michael Kersner, says at Queen's Park about this legislation that the Ford government's now putting forth to try to change things. Have a quick listen here. No one convicted of serious and disturbing crimes like these should be receiving a taxpayer-funded salary. Our government brought forward legislation, the Community Safety and Policing Act, that once in force will allow a chief of police to suspend an officer without pay. 
Well, there you go. As a matter of fact, over the last 15 years, the Ontario Association of, police, of Chiefs of Police have been trying to get Ontario to do exactly that. In 2021, 120 officers in Ontario were suspended with pay. And um, the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police are really moving to make that um, something that is um, not going to continue much longer. My guest this evening is uh, Patrick Watson. He's the Associate Professor of Criminology at Wilford Laurier University. Patrick, thanks for sticking with us and being on the show. Um, you know, pleasure. clearly the clearly the bosses think that this is uh, kind of hand you know hand tying them. Um, kind of keeping them stuck with a situation that they don't really want to be stuck with. Um, you would think it might have happened sooner, but happy that it's happening now. Along the way, though, you, you must understand, I'm, I'm sure, you must understand that this has an impact on public trust. Um, what do you say to that? Yeah, I think I would agree 100% that the public can be very uh, concerned about the amount of money that's going into officers who are suspended and sitting at home or as you as you said earlier playing golf i think uh we've seen stories published where where officers have almost been mockingly saying you know thanks for making the allegation against me i'm going to get a couple years off now uh so this is a real serious issue and i think the the police executives are aware of it i think the other thing to keep in mind is like any other profession policing does have its internal politics and people do have their reasons to be concerned about you know the employer employee relationship uh, that there can be instances where, you know, if you've rubbed the chief the wrong way and, you know, they're, they're going to come and looking for you, then they can find their ways kind of thing. So you do have to make sure that there is, you know, uh, due process involved. I think the one thing that we should be mindful of is uh, in, in the uh, Solicitor General's comments there, he mentioned that post-conviction uh, that officers should be able to be suspended. I think that the public's going to be sort of very concerned to hear those types of words because uh, that's more or less the condition that we're at right now, that once an officer is convicted for a serious offense and they're, they're incarcerated, that's the point at which the Police Services Act allows for the officer to be uh, removed from the service and, and no longer employed. Uh, so if we're just going to say it's at the post-conviction phase when they're incarcerated that they can be taken out, that when they're no longer able to report for work, basically, then we haven't changed very much. And I think we really have to think about those officers who are sitting on suspension with very serious yeah. allegations and they're thinking about yeah. how do we get through to those guys as well. Yeah, we see it. Uh, you know, we're, we went back to uh, a little earlier talking about uh, shootings and, and things of that nature where the SIO, the uh, Special Investigation Unit, is there doing what they need to do to make sure that you know everything is straight up. But, you know, for for an officer to be sitting in a situation where they're well into the system already, I'm not suggesting that they're already convicted, but well into the system, you know, again, evidence-based crime, uh, something of, 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 of some substance. Um, I, I think this has to go beyond just, you know, that kind of stuff. I think there needs to be some, some impact like you have in the real world, in the business world, where someone who's not doing the job uh, or is insubordinate or in some way causes harm to the company or to the brand, um, you can dismiss them with some form of settlement or some payout, depending on how long they've been there. But there is an out. There is a definitive way to sever that relationship. It doesn't appear that this happens unless you really, you really, really break the law and do something severe. Um, how are we going to impact, you know, this decision, this new legislation, so that it doesn't have to be life and death decisions, but really anybody who shouldn't be there not being there collecting a paycheck? 
Absolutely. And I think that's that's more or less one of my concerns with the current legislation that has been passed. And we're just waiting for the details to be sort of put into place now by the Solicitor General's office about what would constitute the type of offense where uh, an officer would be suspendable without pay. I actually think that we need to stop thinking about the offense model and start thinking about the general conduct model as well. Uh, exactly. Is this going to leave open the case that we can have officers, for instance, using racial slurs and abuse against people, which is clearly no longer acceptable in our society, and there would be nothing that the police executive class would be able to do about it because it's not a criminal offense. They might be able to put them in another part of the organization, they might be able to take them out of a public role, but are they going to be hamstrung on trying to remove those officers, or is it going to be something that sort of prevents that type of action from going on? So I think we really need to take a sort of blue skies approach to this and think what are the real serious both criminal offenses as well as sort of public order type offenses, not not criminal offenses, but the things that we really don't want our officers to be engaged with. Talking to Patrick Watson, he's the Associate Professor of Criminology at Wilfrid Laurier University. We're talking about how do you get rid of a cop in Ontario when they break the law or do something severe, you know, relatively heinous. Or in his, in this case, he and I were just talking about just not fitting in, not doing the job anymore. Just you know, something uh, not you know so severe that it's criminal a criminal offense, but should be on the job. Uh, for whatever reason, and it's becoming more and more difficult to fire them. It's more and more, more and more difficult to get rid of somebody in your everyday job in the business world today as well. You know, employees have tons more, you know, uh, tons more rights than they used to before, which I think is great. It certainly impacts, but in some cases, it works against us. When you have, you know, it's kind of like renting out Patrick. It's kind of like renting out your apartment to somebody that you're renting out some space, and then you can never get rid of them because the landlord and tenant act, you know, keeps them there for months, if not years, before they can go. That's dangerous, though, when you have a cop on the street or perhaps a cop that's, you know, being paid for out of a budget. So we don't have enough of them on the street to do the job. Where does safety play in all of this? Safety is always a huge factor uh, and, and officer safety, as well as citizen safety and the safety of people yeah. who are being confronted by the police, uh, people who are, are, say, criminals who need to be brought into custody. I'll, I will say this much. I have heard from every single officer I've ever talked to that the last thing they ever want to do is be out on the other side of the, the patrol car, the squad car, with off what, what's called officer crazy, somebody who they know to be unreliable, to be untrustworthy, who they know that the police service ought to have some capacity to get rid of, but they're kind of saddled with them until they break that line. And so these things do add up over time and they become evident over time. It's not like the, the officer wakes up one day and suddenly becomes completely reckless and out of control. There's, there's usually a history there of some form or another. And I think, you know, when we're asking about how do we do this, well, one suggestion might be, is there some way you can have something like a, a uh, officer peer review so that officers can talk about their work together this is probably something that's that's very sort of fanciful in mind because I think there's a lot of on-the-job pressure and a lot of concern here. But if there was a way that officers could comment on each other's work, on their colleagues' work, and say, you know, I just don't want to be in the car with that that particular officer, that that man or woman today. It's just mm -hmm. too they're they're too risky, they're too dangerous for me. If there's some way that you could do that kind of identification and those types of, of internal processes, internal reviews can start adding up, then maybe that would be the type of thing that could be used to say, okay, this, this seems to be pointing in a direction that we know where this is going to end up if we don't take action. 
Well, we're hoping that your study is a benefit and that the police and the public will benefit from the stuff that you're learning through your research and such. And we're really happy that folks like you are looking at this kind of stuff because it's got to change for sure. I'm talking to Patrick Watson, Associate Professor of Criminology at Wilford Laurier University. A great guest, guy who really knows his stuff, and we appreciate him being with us uh, this evening. 